Section 11 of The Natural History of Selborne by Gilbert White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. The Natural History of Selborne by Gilbert White. Letters 29 to 38 to the Honourable Danes Barrington. Letter 29 to the Honourable Danes Barrington. Selborne, February the 7th, 1776. Dear Sir, in heavy fogs, on elevated situations especially, trees are perfect alembics, and no one that has not attended to such matters can imagine how much water one tree will distill in a night's time by condensing the vapour which trickles down the twigs and boughs, so as to make the ground below quite in a float. In Newton Lane in October 1775, on a misty day, a particular oak in leaf dropped so fast that the cartway stood in puddles, and the ruts ran with water, though the ground in general was dusty. In some of our smaller islands in the West Indies, if I mistake not, there are no springs or rivers, but the people are supplied with that necessary element, water, merely by the dripping of some large tall trees which, standing in the bosom of a mountain, keep their heads constantly enveloped with fogs and clouds, from which they dispense their kindly, never-ceasing moisture, and so render those districts habitable by condensation alone. Trees in leaf have such a vast proportion more of surface than those that are naked, that in theory their condensations should greatly exceed those that are stripped of their leaves. But as the former imbibe also a great quantity of moisture, it is difficult to say which drip most. But this I know, that deciduous trees that are entwined with much ivy seem to distill the greatest quantity. Ivy leaves are smooth and thick and cold, and therefore condense very fast, and besides evergreens imbibe very little. These facts may furnish the intelligent with hints concerning what trees they should plant round small ponds that they should wish to be perennial, and show them how advantageous some trees are in preference to others. Trees perspire profusely, condense largely, and check evaporation so much that woods are always moist. No wonder, therefore, that they contribute much to pools and streams. That trees are great promoters of lakes and rivers appears from a well-known fact in North America, for since the woods and forests have been grubbed and cleared, all bodies of water are much diminished, so that some streams that were very considerable a century ago will not now drive a common mill. Besides, most woodlands, forests, and chases with us abound with pools and morasses, no doubt for the reason given above. To a thinking mind few phenomena are more strange than the state of little ponds on the summits of chalk hills, many of which are never dry in the most trying droughts of summer. On chalk hills, I say, because in many rocky and gravelly soils springs usually break out pretty high on the sides of elevated grounds and mountains, but no person acquainted with chalky districts will allow that they ever saw springs in such a soil but in valleys and bottoms since the waters of so pervious a stratum as chalk all lie on one dead level, as well-diggers have assured me again and again. Now we have many such little round ponds in this district, and one in particular on our sheep-down, three hundred feet above my house, which, though never above three feet deep in the middle, and not more than thirty feet in diameter, and containing perhaps not more than two or three hundred hogsheads of water, 
yet never is known to fail, though it affords drink for three hundred or four hundred sheep, and for at least twenty head of large cattle beside. This pond, it is true, is overhung with two moderate beaches, that doubtless at times afford it much supply, but then we have others as small, that without the aid of trees, and in spite of evaporation from sun and wind, and perpetual consumption by cattle, yet constantly maintain a moderate share of water, without overflowing in the wettest seasons, as they would do if supplied by springs. By my journal of May 1775, it appears that the small and even considerable ponds in the vales are now dried up, while the small ponds on the very tops of hills are but little affected. Can this difference be accounted for from evaporation alone, which certainly is more prevalent in bottoms? Or rather, have not those elevated pools some unnoticed recruits, which in the night-time counterbalance the waste of the day, without which the cattle alone must soon exhaust them? and here it will be necessary to enter more minutely into the cause. Dr. Hales, in his Vegetable Statics, advances from experiment that the moister the earth is, the more dew falls on it in a night, and more than a double quantity of dew falls on a surface of water than there does on an equal surface of moist earth. Hence we see that water, by its coolness, is enabled to assimilate to itself a large quantity of moisture, nightly by condensation and that the air when loaded with fogs and vapours and even with copious dews can alone advance a considerable and never failing resource persons that are much abroad and travel early and late such as shepherds fishermen etc can tell what prodigious fogs prevail in the night on elevated downs even in the hottest parts of summer and how much the surfaces of things are drenched by those swimming vapours though to the senses all the while little moisture seems to fall. I am, etc. Letter 30 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, April the 3rd, 1776. Dear Sir, Monsieur Erisson, a French anatomist, seems persuaded that he has discovered the reason why cuckoos do not hatch their own eggs. The impediment, he supposes, arises from the internal structure of their parts, which incapacitates them for incubation. According to this gentleman, the crop or craw of a cuckoo does not lie before the sternum at the bottom of the neck, as in the gallany, columbi, etc., but immediately behind it, on and over the bowels, so as to make a large protuberance in the belly. Induced by this assertion, we procured a cuckoo, and cutting open the breastbone and exposing the intestines to sight, found the crop lying as mentioned above. This stomach was large and round, and stuffed hard like a pincushion with food, which upon nice examination we found to consist of various insects, such as small scarabs, spiders, and dragonflies, the last of which we have seen cuckoos catching on the wing as they were just emerging out of the Aurelia state. Among this farrago also were to be seen maggots, and many seeds which belonged either to gooseberries, currants, cranberries, or some such fruit, so that these birds apparently subsist on insects and fruits nor was there the least appearance of bones, feathers, or fur, to support the idle notion of their being birds of prey. The sternum in this bird seemed to us to be remarkably short, between which and the anus lay the crop or craw, and immediately behind that the bowels against the backbone. It must be allowed, as this anatomist observes, that the crop placed just upon the bowels must, especially when full, be in a very uneasy situation during the business of incubation, Yet the test will be to examine whether birds that are actually known to sit for certain are not formed in a similar manner. 
This inquiry I proposed to myself to make with a fern-owl or goat-sucker as soon as opportunity offered, because if their information proves the same, the reason for incapacity in the cuckoo will be allowed to have been taken up somewhat hastily. Not long after a fern-owl was procured, which from its habit and shape we suspected might resemble the cuckoo in its internal construction, nor were our suspicions ill-grounded, for upon the dissection the crop or craw also lay behind the sternum, immediately on the viscera, between them and the skin of the belly. It was bulky, and stuffed hard with large phalaenae, moths of several sorts, and their eggs, which no doubt had been forced out of those insects by the action of swallowing. Now, as it appears that this bird, which is so well known to practice incubation, is formed in a similar manner with cuckoos, Monsieur Erisson's conjecture that cuckoos are incapable of incubation from the disposition of their intestines seems to fall to the ground, and we are still at a loss for the cause of that strange and singular peculiarity in the instance of the cuculus canorus. We found the case to be the same with the ring-tail hawk in respect to formation, and as far as I can recollect with the swift and probably it is so with many more sorts of birds that are not granivorous. I am, etc. Letter 31 to the Honourable Danes Barrington. Selborne, April the 29th, 1776. Dear Sir, on August the 4th, 1775, we surprised a large viper, which seemed very heavy and bloated as it lay in the grass basking in the sun. When we came to cut it up, we found that the abdomen was crowded with young, fifteen in number, the shortest of which measured full seven inches, and were about the size of full-grown earthworms. This little fry issued into the world with the true viper spirit about them, showing great alertness as soon as disengaged from the belly of the dam. They twisted and wriggled about, and set themselves up, and gaped very wide when touched with a stick, showing manifest tokens of menace and defiance, though as yet they had no manner of fangs that we could find, even with the help of our glasses. To a thinking mind, nothing is more wonderful than that early instinct which impresses young animals with the notion of the situation of their natural weapons, and of using them properly in their own defence, even before those weapons subsist or are formed. Thus a young cock will spar at his adversary before his spurs are grown, and a calf or a lamb will push with their heads before their horns are sprouted. In the same manner did these young adders attempt to bite before their fangs were in being. The dam, however, was furnished with very formidable ones, which we lifted up, for they fold down when not used, and cut them off with the point of our scissors. There was little room to suppose that this brood had ever been in the open air before, and that they were taken in for refuge at the mouth of the dam when she perceived that danger was approaching, because then, probably, we should have found them somewhere in the neck, and not in the abdomen. Letter 32 to the Honourable Danes Barrington Castration has a strange effect. It emasculates both man, beast, and bird and brings them to a near resemblance of the other sex. Thus eunuchs have smooth, unmuscular arms, thighs, and legs, and broad hips, and beardless chins, and squeaking voices. Gelt stags and bucks have hornless heads like hinds and does. Thus weathers have small horns like ewes, and oxen large bent horns, and hoarse voices when they low, like cows, for bulls have short straight horns. And though they mutter and grumble in a deep tremulous tone, yet they low in a shrill high key. Capons have small combs and gills, and look pallid about the head like pullets. They also walk without any parade, and hover chickens like hens. Barrow-hogs have also small tusks like sows. Thus far it is plain that the deprivation of masculine vigour puts a stop to the growth of those parts or appendages that are looked upon as its insignia. But the ingenious Mr. Lyle, in his book on husbandry, carries it much farther, 
for he says that the loss of those insignia alone has sometimes a strange effect on the ability itself. He had a boar so fierce and venereous that, to prevent mischief, orders were given for his tusks to be broken off. No sooner had the beast suffered this injury than his powers forsook him, and he neglected those females to whom before he was passionately attached, and from whom no fences could restrain him. Letter 33 to the Honourable Danes Barrington The natural term of an hog's life is little known, and the reason is plain, because it is neither profitable nor convenient to keep that turbulent animal to the full extent of its time. However, my neighbour, a man of substance, who had no occasion to study every little advantage to a nicety, kept an half-bred bantam sow, who was as thick as she was long, and whose belly swept on the ground, till she was advanced to her seventeenth year, at which period she showed some tokens of age by the decay of her teeth, and the decline of her fertility. For about ten years this prolific mother produced two litters in the year, of about ten at a time, and once above twenty at a litter, but as there were near double the number of pigs to that of teats, many died. From long experience in the world, this female was grown very sagacious and artful. When she found occasion to converse with a boar, she used to open all the intervening gates, and march by herself up to a distant farm where one was kept, and when her purpose was served, would return by the same means. At the age of about fifteen, her litters began to be reduced to four or five, and such a litter she exhibited when in her fatting pen, she proved, when fat, good bacon, juicy and tender. The rind or sward was remarkably thin. At a moderate computation she was allowed to have been the fruitful parent of three hundred pigs, a prodigious instance of fecundity in so large a quadruped. She was killed in spring 1775. I am, etc. Letter 34 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, May the ninth, 1776. Dear Sir, Admorant ubera tigres. Reader's note. The tigers have bought near their teats for suckling. End reader's note. We have remarked in a former letter how much incongruous animals in a lonely state may be attached to each other from a spirit of sociality. In this it may not be amiss to recount a different motive, which has been known to create as strange a fondness. My friend had a little helpless leveret brought to him, which the servants fed with milk in a spoon and about the same time his cat kittened, and the young were dispatched and buried. The hare was soon lost, and supposed to be gone the way of most foundlings, to be killed by some dog or cat. However, in about a fortnight, as the master was sitting in his garden in the dusk of the evening, he observed his cat with tail erect trotting towards him, and calling with little short inward notes of complacency, such as they used towards their kittens, and something gambling after, which proved to be the leveret that the cat had supported with her milk, and continued to support with great affection. Thus was a graminivorous animal, nurtured by a carnivorous and predacious one. Why so cruel and sanguinary a beast as a cat of the ferocious genus of Phyllis, the Murium Leo, as Linnaeus calls it, should be affected with any tenderness towards an animal which is its natural prey, is not so easy to determine. This strange affection probably was occasioned by that desiderium, those tender maternal feelings, which the loss of her kittens had awakened in her breast, and by the complacency and ease she derived to herself from the procuring her teats to be drawn, which were too much distended with milk, till from habit she became as much delighted with this foundling as if it had been her real offspring. 
This incident is no bad solution of that strange circumstance which grave historians, as well as the poets, assert, of exposed children being sometimes nurtured by female wild beasts, that probably had lost their young. For it is not one whit more marvellous that Romulus and Remus, in their infant state, should be nursed by a she-wolf, than that a poor little sucking leveret should be fostered and cherished by a bloody Grimalkin. Viridi foetam mavortis in antro procubuisse lupam, geminos suic uberus circum ludere pendentes pueros, et lamberi metrum impavidos, ilam terete cervice reflexam, ulceri alternus et corpora fingere lingua. Reader's Note he had pictured the newly delivered she-wolf stretched out in the green cave of Mars, with the twin boys playing, hanging from her breasts, and licking their dam without fear, while she, bending her shapely neck, caressed them and moulded their bodies with her tongue. End reader's note. Letter 35 to the Honourable Danes Barrington. Selborne, May the 20th, 1777. Dear Sir, lands that are subject to frequent inundations are always poor, and probably the reason may be because the worms are drowned. The most insignificant insects and reptiles are of much more consequence, and have much more influence in the economy of nature, than the incurious are aware of, and are mighty in their effect, from their minuteness, which renders them less an object of attention, and from their numbers and fecundity. Earthworms, though in appearance a small and despicable link in the chain of nature, yet, if lost, would make a lamentable chasm, for to say nothing of half the birds and some quadrupeds which are almost entirely supported by them, worms seem to be the great promoters of vegetation, which would proceed but lamely without them, by boring, perforating, and loosening the soil, and rendering it pervious to rains and the fibres of plants by drawing straws and stalks of leaves and twigs into it, and most of all by throwing up such infinite numbers of lumps of earth called worm-casts, which, being their excrement, is a fine manure for grain and grass. Worms probably provide new soil for hills and slopes where the rain washes the earth away, and they affect slopes, probably to avoid being flooded. Gardeners and farmers express their detestation of worms, the former because they render their walks unsightly, and make them much work, and the latter because, as they think, worms eat their green corn. But these men would find that the earth without worms would soon become cold, hard-bound, and void of fermentation, and consequently sterile. And besides, in favour of worms, it should be hinted that green corn, plants, and flowers are not so much injured by them as by many species of coleoptera, scarabs, and tipuli, long legs, in their larvae, or grub state, and by unnoticed myriads of small shell-less snails, called slugs, which silently and imperceptibly make amazing havoc in the field and garden. Note, Farmer Young of Norton Farm says that this spring, 1777, about four acres of his wheat in one field was entirely destroyed by slugs, which swarmed on the blades of corn and devoured it as fast as it sprang. End note. These hints we think proper to throw out in order to set the inquisitive and discerning to work. A good monography of worms would afford much entertainment and information at the same time, 
and would open a large and new field in natural history. Worms work most in the spring, but by no means lie torpid in the dead months, are out every mild night in the winter, as any person may be convinced that will take the pains to examine his grass-plots with a candle, are hermaphrodites, and much addicted to venery, and consequently very prolific. I am, etc. Letter 36 to the Honourable Daines Barrington. Selborne, November the 22nd, 1777. Dear Sir, you cannot but remember that the 26th and 27th of last March were very hot days, so sultry that everybody complained, and were restless under those sensations to which they had not been reconciled by gradual approaches. This sudden summer-like heat was attended by many summer coincidences, for on those two days the thermometer rose to sixty-six in the shade. Many species of insects revived and came forth. Some bees swarmed in this neighbourhood. The old tortoise near Lewis in Sussex awakened and came forth out of its dormitory. And what is most to my present purpose, many house-swallows appeared, and were very alert in many places, and particularly at Cobham in Surrey. But as that short warm period was succeeded as well as preceded by harsh severe weather, with frequent frosts and ice, and cutting winds, the insects withdrew, the tortoise retired again into the ground, and the swallows were seen no more until the tenth of April, when, the rigour of the spring abating, a softer season began to prevail. Again it appears by my journals for many years past that house-martins retire to a bird about the beginning of October, so that a person not very observant of such matters would conclude that they had taken their last farewell. But then it may be seen in my diaries also that considerable flocks have discovered themselves again in the first week of November, and often on the fourth day of that month, only for one day, and that not as if they were in actual migration, but playing about at their leisure and feeding calmly, as if no enterprise of moment at all agitated their spirits. And this was the case in the beginning of this very month, for on the 4th of November more than twenty house-martins, which in appearance had all departed about the 7th of October, were seen again, for that one morning only, sporting between my fields and the hangar, and feasting on insects which swarmed in that sheltered district. The preceding day was wet and blustering, but the fourth was dark and mild, and soft, the wind at south-west, and the thermometer at fifty-eight and a half, a pitch not common at that season of the year. Moreover, it may not be amiss to add in this place that whenever the thermometer is above fifty, the bat comes flitting out in every autumnal and winter month. From all these circumstances laid together, it is obvious that torpid insects, reptiles, and quadrupeds are awakened from their profoundest slumbers by a little untimely warmth, and therefore that nothing so much promotes this death-like stupor as a defect of heat. And farther, it is reasonable to suppose that two whole species, or at least many individuals of those two species, of British hirundines, do never leave this island at all but partake of the same benumbed state, for we cannot suppose that, after a month's absence, house-martins can return from southern regions to appear for one morning in November, or that house-swallows should leave the districts of Africa to enjoy in March 
the transient summer of a couple of days. I am, etc. Letter 37 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, January the 8th, 1778. Dear Sir, there was in this village several years ago a miserable pauper who from his birth was addicted with a leprosy, as far as we are aware, of a singular kind, since it affected only the palms of his hands and the soles of his feet. This scaly eruption usually broke out twice in the year, at the spring and fall, and by peeling away left the skin so thin and tender that neither his hands or feet were able to perform their functions, so that the poor object was half his time on crutches, incapable of employ, and languishing in a tiresome state of indolence and inactivity. His habit was lean, lank, and cadaverous. In this sad plight he dragged on a miserable existence, a burden to himself and his parish, which was obliged to support him till he was relieved by death at more than thirty years of age. The good women who love to account for every defect in children by the doctrine of longing said that his mother felt a violent propensity for oysters, which she was unable to gratify, and that the black rough scurf on his hands and feet were the shells of that fish. We knew his parents, neither of which were lepers. His father in particular lived to be far advanced in years. In all ages the leprosy has made a dreadful havoc among mankind. The Israelites seem to have been greatly afflicted with it from the most remote times, as appears from the peculiar and repeated injunctions given them in the Levitical law. Nor was the rancour of this foul disorder much abated in the last period of their commonwealth, as may be seen in many passages of the New Testament. Some centuries ago this horrible distemper prevailed all Europe over, and our forefathers were by no means exempt, as appears by the large provision made for objects labouring under this calamity. There was an hospital for female lepers in the Diocese of Lincoln, a noble one near Durham, three in London and Southwark, and perhaps many more in or near our great towns and cities. Moreover, some crowned heads and other wealthy and charitable personages bequeathed large legacies to such poor people as languished under this hopeless infirmity. It must, therefore, in these days, be to an humane and thinking person a matter of equal wonder and satisfaction when he contemplates how nearly this pest is eradicated, and observes that a leper now is a rare sight. He will, moreover, when engaged in such a train of thought, naturally inquire for the reason. This happy change, perhaps, may have originated and been continued from the much smaller quantity of salted meat and fish now eaten in these kingdoms, from the use of linen next to the skin, from the plenty of better bread, and from the profusion of fruits, roots, legumes, and greens, so common in every family. Three or four centuries ago, before there were any enclosures, sown grasses, field turnips, or field carrots, or hay, all the cattle which had grown fat in summer, and were not killed for winter use, were turned out soon after Michaelmas to shift as they could through the dead months, so that no fresh meat could be had in winter or spring. Hence the marvellous account of the vast stores of salted flesh found in the larder of the eldest Spencer in the days of Edward the Second, even so late in the spring as the third of May, that is, six hundred bacons, eighty carcasses of beef, and six hundred muttons. It was from magazines like these that the turbulent barons supported in idleness their riotous swarms of retainers, ready for any disorder or mischief. 
but agriculture is now arrived at such a pitch of perfection that our best and fattest meats are killed in the winter, and no man need eat salted flesh, unless he prefers it, that has money to buy fresh. One cause of this distemper might be, no doubt, the quantity of wretched fresh and salt fish consumed by the commonalty at all seasons as well as in Lent, which our poor now would hardly be persuaded to touch. The use of linen changes, shirts or shifts, in the room of sordid and filthy woollen, long worn next the skin, is a matter of neatness, comparatively modern, but must prove a great means of preventing cutaneous ails. At this very time woollen instead of linen prevails among the poorer Welsh, who are subject to foul eruptions. The plenty of good wheat and bread that now is found among all ranks of people in the south, instead of that miserable sort which used in old days to be made of barley or beans, may contribute not a little to the sweetening their blood and correcting their juices, for the inhabitants of mountainous districts, to this day, are still liable to the itch and other cutaneous disorders from a wretchedness and poverty of diet. As to the produce of a garden, every middle-aged person of observation may perceive, within his own memory, both in town and country, how vastly the consumption of vegetables is increased. Green stalls in cities now support multitudes in a comfortable state, while gardeners get fortunes. Every decent labourer also has his garden, which is half his support, as well as his delight, and common farmers provide plenty of beans, peas, and greens for their hinds to eat with their bacon, and those few that do not are despised for their sordid parsimony, and looked upon as regardless of the welfare of their dependents. Potatoes have prevailed in this little district, by means of premiums, within these twenty years only, and are much esteemed here now by the poor, who would scarce have ventured to taste them in the last rain. Our Saxon ancestors certainly had some sort of cabbage, because they call the month of February sprout kale, but long after their days the cultivation of gardens was little attended to. The religious, being men of leisure, and keeping up a constant correspondence with Italy, were the first people among us that had gardens and fruit-trees, in any perfection, within the walls of their abbeys and priories. Note. In monasteries the lamp of knowledge continued to burn, however dimly. In them men of business were formed for the state. The art of writing was cultivated by the monks. They were the only proficients in mechanics, gardening, and architecture. See Dalrymple's Annals of Scotland. End note. The barons neglected every pursuit that did not lead to war or tend to the pleasure of the chase. It was not till gentlemen took up the study of horticulture themselves that the knowledge of gardening made such hasty advances. Lord Cobham, Lord Eyler, and Mr. Waller of Beaconsfield were some of the first people of rank that promoted the elegant science of ornamenting, without despising the superintendence of the kitchen quarters and fruit walls. A remark made by the excellent Mr. Ray in his Tour of Europe at once surprises us and corroborates what has been advanced above, for we find him observing, so late as his days, that the Italians use several herbs for salads, which are not yet or have not been but lately used in England, that is, celery, which is nothing else but the sweet smallage, the young shoots whereof with a little of the head of the root cut off they eat raw with oil and pepper. And further he adds, 
Curled endive blanched is much used beyond seas, and for a raw salad seemed to excel lettuce itself. Now this journey was undertaken no longer ago than in the year 1663. I am, etc. Letter 38 to the Honourable Danes Barrington Forte puer comitum seductus ab agmine fido, dixerat equist adest, et adest responderat echo. Hic stupet, utque aciem partes divisit in omnes, voce veni clamat magna, vocat illa vocantem. Reader's Note A boy, separated from his band of friends, had called out, Is anyone here? To which had come the echo in reply. Amazed, looking all round, the boy called out loudly, Come! His call is answered by the call of the echo. End reader's note. Selborne, February the 12th, 1778. Dear Sir, In a district so diversified as this, so full of hollow vales and hanging woods, it is no wonder that echoes should abound. Many we have discovered that return the cry of a pack of dogs, the notes of a hunting-horn, a tunable ring of bells, or the melody of birds, very agreeably. But we were still at a loss for a polysyllabical, articulate echo, till a young gentleman, who had parted from his company in a summer evening walk, and was calling after them, stumbled upon a very curious one in a spot where it might least be expected. At first he was much surprised, and could not be persuaded, but that he was mocked by some boy. But repeating his trials in several languages, and finding his respondent to be a very adroit polyglot, he then discerned the deception. This echo, in an evening before rural noises cease, would repeat ten syllables most articulately and distinctly, especially if quick dactyls were chosen. The last syllables of Titire tu patule recubans were as audibly and intelligibly returned as the first, and there is no doubt, could trial have been made, but that at midnight, when the air is very elastic, and a dead stillness prevails, one or two syllables more might have been obtained, but the distance rendered so late an experiment very inconvenient. Quick dactyls, we observed, succeeded best, for when we came to try its powers in slow, heavy, embarrassed spondees of the same number of syllables, monstrum horrendum informe ingens, we could perceive a return but of four or five. All echoes have some one place to which they are returned stronger and more distinct than to any other, and that is always the place that lies at right angles with the object of repercussion, and is not too near nor too far off. Buildings or naked rocks re-echo much more articulately than hanging wood or veils, because in the latter the voice is, as it were, entangled, and embarrassed in the covert, and weakened in the rebound. The true object of this echo, as we found by various experiments, is the stone-built, tiled hop-kiln in Galley Lane, which measures in front forty feet, and from the ground to the eaves twelve feet. The true centrum phonicum, or just distance, is one particular spot in the King's Field, in the path to Nor Hill, on the very brink of the steep balk above the hollow cartway. In this case there is no choice of distance, but the path by mere contingency happens to be the lucky, the identical spot, 
because the ground rises or falls so immediately, if the speaker either retires or advances, that his mouth would at once be above or below the object. We measured this polysyllabical echo with great exactness, and found the distance to fall very short of Dr. Plot's rule for distinct articulation, for the doctor in his history of Oxfordshire allows one hundred and twenty feet for the return of each syllable distinctly. Hence this echo, which gives ten distinct syllables, ought to measure four hundred yards, or a hundred and twenty feet to each syllable, whereas our distance is only two hundred and fifty-eight yards, or near seventy-five feet to each syllable. Thus our measure falls short of the doctor's, as five to eight, but then it must be acknowledged that this candid philosopher was convinced afterwards that some latitude must be admitted of in the distance of echoes, according to time and place. When experiments of this sort are making, it should always be remembered that weather and the time of day have a vast influence on an echo, for a dull, heavy, moist air deadens and clogs the sound, and hot sunshine renders the air thin and weak, and deprives it of all its springiness, and a ruffling wind quite defeats the whole. In a still, clear, dewy evening the air is most elastic, and perhaps the later the hour the more so. Echo has always been so amusing to the imagination that the poets have personified her, and in their hands she has been the occasion of many a beautiful fiction. Nor need the gravest man be ashamed to appear taken with such a phenomenon, since it may become the subject of philosophical or mathematical inquiries. One should have imagined that echoes, if not entertaining, must at least have been harmless and inoffensive, yet Virgil advances a strange notion that they are injurious to bees. After enumerating some probable and reasonable annoyances, such as prudent owners would wish far removed from their bee-gardens, he adds, Eut ubi concava pulsu saxa sonant, vocisque offensa resultat image. Reader's note. Or where the arched rocks reverberate when struck, and the sound, hurled back, rebounds as an echo. End reader's note. This wild and fanciful assertion will hardly be admitted by the philosophers of these days, especially as they all now seem agreed that insects are not furnished with any organs of hearing at all. But if it should be urged that, though they cannot hear, yet perhaps they may feel the repercussion of sounds, I grant it is possible they may. Yet that these impressions are distasteful or hurtful I deny, because bees in good summers thrive well in my outlet, where the echoes are very strong, for this village is another anathoth, a place of responses or echoes. Besides, it does not appear from experiment that bees are in any way capable of being affected by sounds, for I have often tried my own with a large speaking trumpet held close to their hives, and with such an exertion of voice as would have hailed a ship at the distance of a mile, and still these insects pursued their various employments undisturbed, and without showing the least sensibility or resentment. Some time since its discovery this echo is become totally silent, though the object or hop-kiln remains, nor is there any mystery in this defect, for the field between is planted as an hop-garden, and the voice of the speaker is totally absorbed and lost among the poles and entangled foliage of the hops. And when the poles are removed in autumn, the disappointment is the same, because a tall, quick-set hedge, nurtured up for the purpose of shelter to the hop-ground, entirely interrupts the impulse and repercussion of the voice, 
so that, till those obstructions are removed, no more of its garrulity can be expected. Should any gentleman of fortune think an echo in his park or outlet a pleasing incident, he might build one at little or no expense, for whenever he had occasion for a new barn, stable, dog-kennel, or the like structure, it would be only needful to erect this building on the gentle declivity of an hill, with a like rising opposite to it, at a few hundred yards' distance, and perhaps success might be the easier ensured, could some canal, lake, or stream intervene. From a seat at the Centrum Phonicum, he and his friends might amuse themselves sometimes of an evening, with the prattle of this loquacious nymph, of whose complacency and decent reserve more may be said than can with truth of every individual of her sex, since she is quae nec reticere loquenti, nec prior ipsa loquididicit resonabilis echo. Reader's note. Responsive echo who learned neither to be silent when another speaks, nor herself to be the first to speak. End reader's note. I am, etc. P.S. The classic reader will, I trust, pardon the following lovely quotation, so finely describing echoes, and so poetically accounting for their causes, from popular superstition. Quae bene quam videas, rationem redere posis, Tute tibiat qui alus, co pacto per loca sola, saxa pareis formas verborum ex ordine redant, palanteis comites quam monteis inter opacos, quaermus et magna dispersos voce quiemus, sex etiam aut septem loca vidi redere voces unam quam jaceres, ita colles colibus ipsis verba repulsantes iterabant dicta referi, haec loca capripedes satiros, nymphasque tenere finitimi fingunt, et feunus esse locvuntur, quorum noctivago strepitu, ludoque jucanti ad firmant volgo taciturna silentia rumpi, quodorumpci sonos fieri dulceisque querilas, Tibia quas fundit digitas pulsata canentum, et genus agricolum late sentiscere quam pan, pinea semiferi capitis velamina quassans, unco saepe labro calamos percurit hianteis, fistula silvestrem ne cesset fundere musam. Lucretius, Book 4, 1, 5, 7, 6. Reader's Note When you understand this well, you might be able to give a reason to yourself and others how it happens that in lonely places the rocks give back the same formation of words in their order when we look for friends struggling among the shady mountains and call loudly after them scattered around. I have known places give back as many as six or seven sounds when only one has been uttered, so did hills echo one's words and repeatedly give back that which was spoken. Those living near imagine goat-footed satyrs and nymphs haunting these places. They say there are fauns, by whose din and play at night they commonly declare the silence and stillness to be broken. They say, too, how the sounds of strings are heard, and plaintive laments, which the pipe pours forth when played on by the fingers of the music-maker. 
They tell how the farmers, far and wide, are aware when Pan, shaking the pine-wreathed covering of his half-bestial head, often runs over the open reeds with curving lip that the shepherd's pipe may never cease its flow of woodland song. End reader's note. The end of section 11 of Gilbert White's Natural History of Selborne.